Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. There's a passage about a man called Enoch. And we're told there that Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begot Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begot Methuselah 300 years and begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. Whenever I was a teenager, we were amazed with that verse and used to try and practice sermon titles, catchy sermon titles as a teenager. Other teenagers were playing football, doing sensible things. And we were trying to invent a, a, a sermon title on the story of Enoch and we came up with the gent with the godly gate. Gate, G-A-I-T. A man who walked with God and was not, for the Lord took him. And we assume by that that what happened was that Enoch was a godly man. He was in perfect fellowship with God. And one day he walked right into God's presence. Didn't have to die like us. I don't know. That's what we were looking at anyway, and that's what we were exploring. But we have to die one day. Someday, perhaps soon for some of us. So if Jesus died for me, if Jesus took my death upon himself at the cross, why then do I have to physically die? Full disclosure. Uh, I'm basing this talk on a series of catechism lessons. Um, So um, it's not particularly new stuff. But in the Catechism lessons, I'm dealing with Lord's Day 16 in the Heidelberg Catechism. About death, about Christ's death, and about my death, about the purpose of Christ's death, and about the purpose of my death. So what we're going to do is to begin by just setting the scene slightly, by looking at some current attitudes to dying and to death. And I can tell you there's hardly a better person equipped to talk about this than me. When I uh, left my full-time church 13 years ago and uh, I was without work, one of the funeral directors in Belfast rang me up and he said to me, is everything all right, Bob? And I said, it's not. I've just been resigned. And he said, would you like to do some work for me? I was in a hole, a real pickle. I said, well, what, can you, what do you want me to do? He says, take some funeral services for me. So I took some funeral services for him. I've taken thousands of them from that day to this. Sometimes people will ring you up and they'll say, there's a wee man has passed away or a lady has passed away and they have no minister and would you go and take a funeral service for them. And you meet all sorts of people. And sometimes you get strange attitudes and you hear strange things. The prevailing culture at the moment is that death is something that we don't like to touch. We live in a culture that sanitizes it, that leaves it to the professionals. In earlier days, Especially in Belfast, if a death occurred in a street, everyone in the street would know. The neighbours and the friends would rally round to help. They would help with the preparation for the funeral. They would help with the washing and the dressing of the deceased, the laying out of the body. That would all have been done at home. Death was close. Death was ever-present. And it wasn't unusual for small children in the street to knock the door. And when the widow would answer the door, some of the kids would say, can we come in and see the dead man, please? 
I remember being taken to see somebody in a coffin in a street in Belfast when I was six by my grandparents. Death was something we were aware of. We were aware of the precarious nature of human life. Nowadays, we make a phone call and the professionals take over. At a cost, of course. The next time we see the body of the deceased, it's well-dressed in a coffin, washed and embalmed and improved with cosmetics so that the reality of death, with all its smells and its rottenness, is hidden from us, and we call it dignity. So death's something we don't like to touch, and death's something that our society doesn't like to face up to. Often in those opportunities that I get to take funeral services, people who have no pastor of their own, I go into a home and I pray before I go in that I might find some opportunity to share the gospel with them in their hour of distress. And sometimes, occasionally, although I've found ways of heading this off, but sometimes someone in a grief-stricken home will hand me a piece of paper And maybe on that piece of paper there'll be a poem or a reading, something they've trawled the internet for and pasted from some website. And I have to try and explain to them as gently and as firmly as I possibly can that I can't read that poem for them. Because in many cases what they're asking for is inappropriate and sometimes downright false. Here's a popular example. Death is nothing at all. I have only slipped away to the next room. I am I and you are you. Whatever we were to each other, we still are. I am but waiting for you for an interval somewhere, very near, just around the corner. All is well. I can say I've lost count of the times people have handed me that and said, would you read that at the funeral service? And I'd say, I can't, I'm sorry. Why can't you? Because it's not true. It's not true. Imagine telling someone that death is nothing at all, making light of one of the most significant, perhaps the most significant event in the whole of their own, the whole of their lives, And apart from the blatant denial of reality, the New Age beliefs in many of these common poems and readings are totally ungodly and anti-Christian. Imagine telling a person who has lived with their loved one all their life and maybe never even attended a church, let alone make a commitment to Christ, and you're telling them, all is well. When all is anything but well. And yet that's actually what people want to think. And the reason that they want to believe such utter nonsense is because they do not believe in Christ. So they believe in anything. Just last week, sat with a family and at the end of talking about the loved one that they'd lost in very sad circumstances, the lady who'd lost her husband said to me, we didn't go to church, you know, but he believed in something. I found it very hard not to say to her, even the devil believes in something. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. So modern people anesthetize themselves against the reality of death by avoiding its messiness and its physical presence and by mythologizing it away until it becomes an occasion for the liberal application of sentimental placebos. So death is something we don't like to touch. 
something we don't like to face up to, something, thirdly, that we block from our minds by filling our minds with temporal things and material possessions. As if the things that glitter in this life will somehow dull the mind to the reality that one day everything that we have in this life will be pointless. It will be gone. Sometimes when death strikes a home, one of the questions I frequently encounter is why? Why did this happen? Why did it happen to us? Why did it happen now? He had so much to live for. She's just recently been married. They have a young family. They have a responsible occupation. He had just got an impressive list of qualifications and all of it's now gone. It's futile. It's pointless. There's no better way of summing this up than in the words of the book of Ecclesiastes. Right throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the author of that book tells us that everything that we do in this life under the sun, the material world in which we live, is vanity and it will pass away. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 1. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. While the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them, or ever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit return unto God who gave it. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing. When I was a child, or early teens anyway, my church pastor had a little plaque in the hall, in the hall, on a table in the hall of the manse. It read, "Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Jesus will last." It's true enough. Everything that we treasure in this life will soon be over. Although, to be fair, I might change one word in it. You'll understand why. I might like it to read. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done by Jesus will last. For our works and our very best works and our religious works and even our Christian works are still stained and tainted by sin and they deserve nothing but punishment from an eternal holy God, we are always, even at best, unprofitable servants. It is only the work of Christ on the cross that makes anything that we do in this life acceptable to God. The great difference between the death of an unbeliever and the death of a Christian is only the effect of Christ's death sinners. Let's take the next step then. Why did Jesus have to die? I hope you don't mind me quoting from the Heidelberg Catechism. It's the catechism that we use in church in Ballymacashan. On Lord's Day 16 in question 40, the Heidelberg Catechism asks, why was it necessary for Christ to suffer death? And the answer is because the justice and truth of God required that satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Christ's atoning death on the cross has changed everything for us. Why did Jesus have to die? He had to die to make satisfaction for our sins. 
And the reason for that is because God is both just and truth and truthful. And we must establish the importance of that, the importance of Christ's death. That's exactly what the catechism is doing there. In his unchanging nature, God is just and he is holy and he is immutable. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. It is only because God never changes that we can even enter his presence. For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin must be death. The souls that sin, the soul that sins will die. To our first father, to Adam, God warned, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. We deserve to die because we are sinners. Jesus had to die because he died my death on the cross. He took the death that I deserved to have and he bore it in his own body. And only by Christ's death can God's justice be satisfied, completely satisfied. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, in that famous Christological passage from the book of Philippians. Paul writes, being found in fashion as a man, Christ humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Hebrews 2 and verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Writing in his commentary in Romans, R.C. Sproul says, If God were to give us what we earn, what we deserve, we would perish from his wrath. But thanks be to God, he gives to us what was earned by his Son. Jesus got what he did not deserve. We get what he did deserve, the righteousness that is by faith. Christ's supreme act of obedience in bearing God's wrath gives us the greatest blessing, namely eternal blessedness. You might hear, if you listen to some debates by modernists or Even by Muslims, you will hear people saying, well, you know, how do we even knowEsus died on the cross? The Apostles' Creed is interesting here. The Apostles' Creed tells us that Jesus was crucified and that he was dead and that he was buried. And that prompts the catechist in the Heidelberg Catechism to ask in question 41, why was he buried? And I think the answer to that is important for us to show thereby that he was really dead. Jesus died on the cross. He truly died. After all, the Roman soldier was well trained in killing and death. I wouldn't want to dwell too much in this, for it's outside the scope of this talk. But it's essential to note that a Roman soldier was a cold trained killer who would bring about the death of a prisoner in the most brutal and agonizing and prolonged methods imaginable. A Roman soldier knew how to make a suffer, how to make a prisoner suffer. A Roman soldier knew exactly what death was all about. And to all of this, the horror of the scourging and the horror of the mocking and the nailing of the hands and the feet to the cross, and the erection of the cross, and the dropping of the cross into the hole in the ground, and the the, the very thud and jar of which would drag the very bones out of their joints, as the psalmist 
had prophesied. The piercing of the spear. Those soldiers knew how to make you die. And to all of that there were witnesses standing around the cross watching the creator of this world dying for his creation. Sinners. And the body was laid in the tomb. Joseph took Christ's body from the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, and placed it in his own tomb, a tomb where never man had lain, with some reverence and respect. And joined by Nicodemus, they prepared the body for burial, and they wrapped it in linen cloths, and they folded into those cloths a mixture of spices to fragrant the tomb. And Christ was buried, and the tomb was sealed, and it was guarded by those Roman soldiers who'd been assigned to the Sanhedrin. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 59. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Christ died. He did not faint or swoon, as the Muslims would say or be substituted by someone else on the cross. He died, and that death was the punishment for your sins and for mine. And he was buried to show us that in his sacrifice on the cross, the effects of Adam's fall are completely reversed. For Adam came from dust and returned to dust. It was part of the curse of sin following the, following the fall. Jesus came from God and was crucified and was buried in dust for us and rose again. And the sting of death and decay and the stench of the grave was defeated in Christ. And that gives us great comfort when we stand at a grave and weep. Why do we need silly poems? Graveside weeping is common to us all, to saint and sinner alike. But when the believer stands at the grave and weeps, the sadness of parting is mingled with the sheer joy of anticipation. For just as our loved ones are laid in the ground in a tomb, so was Christ. And just as sure as he rose triumphant from that tomb, so one day shall they. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Jesus died on the cross for sinners and was buried and rose again. The death of Christ as the ancient catechist tells us, is so that God's justice can be completely satisfied. Our sins are forgiven. We are ready for heaven, for resurrection day. So why do we have to die? Getting to the point. Philippians Paul gives the Christian's death a purpose all of its own. It's a purpose that no one else but us would think of. For the people who I deal with on a weekly basis, death is an awful tragedy. 
Paul says that for a Christian to die is gain. How rarely do we hear this theology of death explained and stated clearly in our modern sub-Christian funeral services. Where all the emphasis nowadays is we're going to have a celebration of life. What is there to celebrate about the life of a sinner? A celebration of this earthly life rather than an enthusiastic proclamation of the glorious future that Christ has prepared for us. Of course, in some of these cases, a celebration of life is all there is. For the likelihood of the deceased actually being in heaven is so remote. But for Christians, while there is a huge sense of loss, loss of a loved one, loss of companionship, loss of a lifelong friend, for the Christian who has died, for the Christian who is facing death, to die is gain. For the Christian's death is different. For the Christian's death, when it comes, is not a punishment for sin, which it is for others. From the fall, death has been part of the curse. It's been part of being one of Adam's fallen race. It's been a punishment for sin. The soul that sins shall die. Paul again saying in Romans chapter 6, For the wages of sin is death. But remember Christ has defeated death. Its sting has been removed. The Christian's death is not a punishment for sin. For that punishment has already been taken. So what is the Christian's death? Let's look back and look forward. Looking back, the Christian's death is the end of our earthly struggle. What are we struggling against? Very frequently I would conduct funeral services for people who have suffered from terminal illness for many years before they die. Some of them have bravely fought their illness. Families will want that fact acknowledged at the funeral and they'll say to me, will you say something like he bravely and courageously fought the illness that killed him and for many years he attended maybe chemotherapy or dialysis or something like that and perhaps some kind of a series of invasive treatments or operations and He was often tired and he was very sore and he was often in hospital for many weeks at a time and he was in intensive care for a long period and throughout it his only desire was to fight the illness so he could get better and return and care for his family again and he never complained at any time and he was only grateful for all the care and the attention he was given And now they will say he's free from all that pain and his troubles are over. But in a Christian case, that's absolutely true. And that's quite a frequent occurrence. People will say to you, he fought bravely to the very end. But when did you ever go to a funeral service and hear the person taking the funeral say something like this. Think of this. For all of his life, he has struggled with a dreadful affliction called sin. For all of his life, he was tempted many times, and that temptation was very great. And I have to say, sometimes he even yielded to it from time to time. And and he was frequently on his knees, engaged in spiritual warfare, battling against his, his human flesh and his old sinful nature that was trying to bring him down. And he attended worship and he read the scriptures and he sought the Lord for the mortification of sin. But now he's free. All his sin, all his sorrow, all his misery is over. Thanks be to God, he's been set free from the presence of sin. Now what a great gain that is. 
We rejoice that in this person who has gone from this world, that sin no longer has any power over him. At death, the believer is released from the presence of sin forever and ever. So the first thing, looking back, is to say that the Christian death is gain because it is the death of our earthly struggle. Secondly, the Christian death is gain because it heralds our entry into heaven's glory. That's a positive benefit. It is our entrance into glory. For not only are we taken away from sin, but we're taken into God's presence. You see, we can't take these earthly bodies into heaven with us. We leave them to rot in the ground, and we go forward to heaven with the Lord to meet our Saviour face to face. And our bodies lie to await the day of the general resurrection of the dead when Christ shall return and the dead raised with incorruptible bodies like Christ's glorious body and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and the plain teaching of the Bible is that the soul of the child of God goes straight into God's presence. There's no purgatory waiting for that Second Corinthians 5 and verse 8 we are confident I say and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present from the Lord Psalm 73 verse 24 thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory whom have I in heaven but thee and there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee when the believer dies that person goes immediately into the presence of the Lord is it any wonder Paul says that to die is gain So what will that entry into heaven mean for the believer? We're nearly finished. Don't be panicking. We'll have a wonderful new home. And it really is a home. Jesus talks about this new heavenly abode as being my father's house. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Like many people in this country, maybe many of you here, my wife and I have relatives who live in other parts of the world. And before COVID, BC, from time to time, they would have come back to Northern Ireland for a holiday with their parents and They would have stayed in the spare room and they would have enjoyed being back in their father's house. And they would have spoken those holidays of coming home. They'd ring up excitedly. We've booked a flight and we're coming home. And they've maybe lived abroad for 20 or 30 years, but we're coming home. Even though they have homes of their own and they have new lives far away. They're still coming back to their parents, their father's house. Every sense of the word, that's home. And it's good to be home. And when we get to heaven, we will be in the family home. We'll be in the father's house. And we never have to leave it again. Those holiday makers eventually, after three or four weeks, have to pack up their bags and drive down to Dublin and get a flight across the Atlantic or wherever they're going. When you get to your father's house, you don't have to go anywhere. You'll be home. It's this longing for home, this homesickness, that characterizes the Christian's attitude to heaven. 
God called Abraham away from his home in Ur to follow him, not knowing where he was ultimately bound, and brought him to the land of Canaan, where he promised the land to him and to his seeds. He wanted a home. He was looking for a permanent home. He was looking for an immovable city, designed and built by the one who designed and created this universe. How do I know? Because of Hebrews 11 and verse 8. Which tells us, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whether he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. It's good for Christians to remember that the house that you live in in this world is not a house. It's a tabernacle where you temporarily dwell, awaiting a permanent city with foundations. We have a wonderful new home. And we are brought into the immediate presence of Christ, our Redeemer. And when we see him, we shall be like him. How will we ever, given our sinful condition, how will we ever enjoy the immediate presence of Christ? Because we'll be changed. First John 3 and verse 2, Beloved, Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. In his book, Foundations of the Christian Faith, James Montgomery Boyce explains how this will change us as individuals. He talks about how we will be like Christ in holiness like Christ in knowledge, like Christ in love. All Christians will be changed. We will be like Jesus, and it will equip us and prepare us for that wonderful meeting with the Saviour and to live together in fellowship and harmony right throughout eternity. A wonderful new home. Being in the presence of Christ, we will receive a reward. The Bible tells us that when we get to heaven, we will receive a reward for service. We certainly don't serve our master, our saviour to get a reward. We serve him because we love him. And we love him because he first loved us. But we are so grateful to him that we want to serve him. But nevertheless, there is a reward for faithful service. And we rest from all our labours. I sometimes wonder, you know, undertakers have a language all of their own. And they will say to you, when someone passes away, will he be resting here or at home? And what they're wanting to ask you is, is he staying in the funeral parlor or is he coming out to the house? But they talk of it as resting. That's not really rest. When we get to heaven, we have a rest. The Bible talks about it, an eternal rest, a rest for the believers. William Hendrickson describes heaven in these terms as reclining in the arms of God in the way a baby would lie in the arms of its mother, perfectly at rest and perfectly at peace, while the mother's arms may tire, says Hendrickson, And she may grow weary. God's arms in which we rest eternally shall never tire of holding us. Why? Because we are told in Deuteronomy that they are the everlasting arms. Eternal God is thy refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. You'll be resting in the arms of God for the rest of eternity. We will, when we get to heaven, have a wonderful new home and we'll be in the immediate presence of Christ and we'll receive a reward and we'll rest from our labours. 
And we'll enjoy the communion of saints. We will know one another. And we'll talk with one another. And we'll enjoy true unbroken fellowship with each other. There are people, modernists and mystics and new agers, who think of heaven as the, the soul's lonely journey into the awareness of God. You used to hear that being talked about in some of these emergent church circles. No, heaven's a society. And we shall not fully and completely, we shall fully and completely interact with each other and we shall know each other more fully than we do here. We shall know each other in the way that God intended. We shall dwell in the company of the redeemed. Let me try and illustrate that for you without taking too long. Heaven's a wedding. It's described as being the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's very interesting language. Some years ago, Jeanette and I got invited to a wedding. And um, it was in County Fermanagh we had received this invitation. Despite my own personal human interaction difficulties, we were truly delighted. It was from some friends of ours who we didn't see very often, people we have known and liked for many, many years, and whose son, when we first met him, was a wee tiny wee baby, and now he was getting married, and we had been invited to the wedding, a very good privilege indeed. A real day to look forward to. We'd meet up with old friends. And we would engage in a joyous act of Christian worship at the wedding service. And we would revel in their happiness. And we would bring with us gifts. And we would enjoy the fellowship. And we'd have the communion of a fine meal together. And so with great anticipation, we waited the glad day. And when it came, it was no disappointment. It was a day of great happiness. A wedding. The uniting of a man and a woman together in marriage for life in its very essence is a social event. It's celebrated usually among friends and family, all drawing pleasure and fulfilment from each other's company and social engagement. So it's no accident that when the Bible talks about heaven in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife hath made herself ready. And it was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we went to the wedding. And afterwards, we went to the reception. It was in a hotel in County Donegal, just over the border from where the wedding had been. And people began to gather as they arrived at the venue, in the hotel lounge before the wedding meal. And the conversation began, and gradually the sound of conversation filled the room as more and more people arrived and began to greet each other. And we caught up in the past and updated each other on the direction that life had taken. Imagine the wedding feast of the Lamb. The guests, those who have been called to the marriage supper, gathering for the reception. Telling the stories of saving grace and the whole of creation filling with the sound of the Saviour's praise as we praise him and talk about the, the, the journey that we have had about the wonderful saving event that brought us to that place. And we meet people. We meet people we've never seen for years. We meet people we've never even met. And we know them as if we've known them forever. So we're standing in the wedding. 
in the midst of all these friends we have never seen for maybe 20 years. And we're talking and we're excited. The hubbub of conversation is everywhere. And then suddenly the doors open. And the master of ceremonies comes in and he bangs a big spoon like a ladle on the counter of the hotel. In the midst of the guest, in walks the bride and groom and the whole atmosphere changes and the man shouts, Ladies and gentlemen, stand to your feet and welcome the bride and groom. And a cheer goes up. And people whistle and shout and cheer and clap. And the long-anticipated moment has come. The happiness can be felt. Imagine the scene in heaven when the saints have gathered for the marriage supper of the Lamb. The shout goes up. It's the bridegroom. And he comes into our midst. And the joy. And the happiness. And the praise. And the great shout of the people. We're home. We're in the presence of the Lord. And he's dwelling in our midst. For he shall be our, our, we shall be his people, and he shall be his God. The covenant promise, the covenant of grace throughout all of eternity has become our eternal reality. Lastly, oh no, one before the last. And this is an interesting one. For the Christian, death is gain. Because only in death do we discover our true purpose of life. How can that be? Well, in fact, so great will be our personal fulfillment and social interaction in that day with other saints and with the Saviour that we will truly and for the very first time appreciate that this moment in glory That moment that I've tried to describe for you is the very reason why God created us in the first place. Ask a Presbyterian. What's the purpose of life? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Some modern evangelism methods are based on the false premise that sinners have some innate ability to seek God and that they actually have the inclination to do so and to entice them to make further inquiries about their salvation. The evangelist will lure them into making what they call a decision for Christ by promising them that God has a wonderful plan for your life. They base it on a misinterpretation of Jeremiah 23. A plan to prosper you in this world. You can actually, they say, have your best life now. I'm actually quoting somebody there. And achieve your purpose in this world. Now that's the very opposite of biblical teaching and biblical Christianity. The Christian life in this world demands that the believer must take up his cross or her cross and deny himself and follow Christ And right throughout the history of the church, from the early times until right now, that self-denial sometimes even involved a martyr's death. So when do we get our best life? When are all our dreams truly fulfilled? When do we truly find our purpose? Not necessarily in this life, but certainly in heaven. When our service to God continues... And is perfectly fulfilled. So we do what we are created to do. Revelation 21. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. 
and there shall be no more death. Neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Lastly then, for the Christian, death is gain because our souls are made perfect. In this life, the believer is going through what we call sanctification, being prepared for heaven. It's achieved for us at the cross positionally, but progressively throughout the Christian life, we ought to be getting more Christ-like. And when we die, that sanctification is completed. That's all I have time to say. But how vastly different is the Christian's departure from this world, from the departure from this world of someone who doesn't know the Saviour. Christian's death is different. Death is the end of our earthly struggle. Death hurls our entry into glory. Is it any wonder that Paul said for me to die is gain? So for the true believer in Christ, death is not something to be avoided or mythologized or sanitized. In fact, it's unwise to do so. Death is one of the very few things in life of which we can be absolutely certain. We're taught in the Psalms, in Psalm 90 and verse 12, we're taught, teach us to number our days so that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Because Christ has died, our death is a glorious prospect. The nature of our death has been changed. In the death of Christ, we died to sin and are raised to new life in Christ so that at the time of our physical death as Christians, We're no longer under the condemnation of the law. We leave behind us in this world all the temptation and the torture inflicted upon us by the world and the flesh and the devil. And we enter into our heavenly home to be with our Saviour Jesus. And to be with Christ is far better, says Paul, than anything that this earth can offer you. I can think of no better closing words than the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 18. He said to Christian believers, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. <laughs>